Good morning, Bodhisattvas. You're still here. Uh, Remarkable. A poem for this morning. Things that change go unnoticed. Why isn't it some other way? Because this is how we are made. Time has made us this way. And all that's happened in time, if anything at all has happened in time. Insect eyes are light-detecting columns consisting of many small units, each one itself an eye. Krill have a compound eye that detects movement, cannot read the New York Times. A tiny sea creature is transparent with transparent eyes that make up 25% of its body weight. If that were true of humans, they would not be able to lift their heads on their necks, would drag them behind, or push them ahead with great effort. The hawk moth distinguishes color by starlight. With a crystalline lens, its corona focusing light like a camera. The senses are theories. I look away and theorize. The tomato remains as it was when I saw it. I theorize the world is real out there. Metaphysical realism. But if species see things differently, or see different things, with different eyes in their heads or elsewhere, which species sees the correct world? Experiences are symbolic constructions. Perception mirrors reality, and we see what's there. This cannot be so. No species sees what's there. All senses work to help us be here, though we don't know where or what this here is. Objects may have characteristics, but we don't know what they are. Selection pressure favors love in a complex world in which the will to live is strong. Capitalism is unsustainable if it favors the few over the many, and none of our perceptions could possibly be true. Reality is utterly unlike our perception of objects distinct from one another in an external world. The true tomato, if there is a tomato, is not the tomato of my mind, which is delicious. (laughs) And I like it. Space-time is like a letter I write that is ink and paper and not the thought I have as I write. No there, there. It's all a bright idea. Space-time is a mode in which I think, not a condition in which I live, says Einstein, who nevertheless believed 
in location. But location seems also to be suspect. There are no limitations at all. What is consciousness? Where is consciousness? Everything, everywhere? Which means nothing, nowhere. Conscious realism. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Nowhere, nothing, ever. I am a convenience for getting along. And death is forgetting the space-time thought. That is actually uh, lecture notes that I took during a talk uh, given by uh, Neil Shorstein, our Everyday Zen Shusou, during our last practice period. Maybe some of you who might have listened in on his talks recognize all that. It's just my lecture notes. We were studying the Shurangama Sutra during the practice period, which is all about this. It's all about perception and how we are so confused and imprisoned by our perceptions. That's why we suffer, because we so much believe in this prisoner-like world we've made. The reason why we were studying that particular sutra is because Neil is an ophthalmologist, and I thought it would really be good for him to study about that. And it was. He really enjoyed it. Reality, whatever reality is, flows ceaselessly. It appears in us as awareness, consciousness, that illuminates all the activity of the senses, the thoughts, the feelings. Bodies come and go, but awareness doesn't come and go. What is awareness exactly? I don't think anyone can say. In continuous practice, Dogen is telling us that when we do continuous practice, we will begin to situate our lives in a space beyond our thoughts and perceptions. It doesn't mean that we're going to have new, exciting, other kinds of thoughts and perceptions, or that we're going to have, stop having thoughts and perceptions in the usual way. In other words, don't worry, this practice will not cause you to become a weirdo <laughs> or a psychotic <laughs> person or a mystic or something like that. It just means that you will have a very different feeling about life and death. And you will have a very different feeling about yourself and what it means to be yourself. So in the next paragraph, I, I think last time I just talked about one paragraph in this 50-page or so text. The next little paragraph says this. The effect of such continuous practice is not hidden. Therefore, you aspire to practice. The effect of such continuous practice is not apparent. Therefore, you do not see, hear, or know it. Understand that although it is not revealed, it is not hidden. So this is the paradox at the heart of Dogen's text, at the heart of our practice, and at the heart of our ordinary human life. And this is where we have to be a little patient with ourselves because we commonly think that two opposite things uh, 
cannot be simultaneously true, although they are. We can see and hear continuous practice. And the tradition is full of stories about this. We can hear it in the sound of the stream, in the song of the bird. We can see it in a cloud. Yes? So sorry to interrupt. People are having trouble hearing. Can you move the mic closer to your mouth? Is that better? Sorry, shall I start at the beginning? (laughs) Shall I start over again? How long are you willing to sit here? (laughs) Uh, Now, if I clip it to my lapel like that, how are we? Still okay? Well, uh, for those of you who couldn't hear before, I'll just refer you to Tim's talk from yesterday. (laughs) I remember that passage from Gary's, uh, one of his early essay books. Uh, It doesn't matter if you can hear the talk, you know, it really doesn't. Can you hear now? Sort of. So, I was saying, uh, the paradox. We can, we can see the practice everywhere. Open your eyes. What do you see? Reality. True reality. Profound reality. And just a bunch of stuff that comes and goes and doesn't matter much. Every now and then we, we, we realize, ah! And then we are really moved by that realization. And, and why it's important is because it makes us continue to practice. It makes us determined to continue to practice. That's why it's important that we have those momentary glimpses of something that may or may not be there. So we can see it, we can hear it, and yet at the same time, of course, we can't. So frustrating to us. We want to have it, grasp it, know it, see it, and we can't. It's just a bird. Just some vibrations in the air that we interpret to be the sound of water going by. It's nothing special. It's just someone's face, nothing special. So, true reality is not hidden. It's not some experience that we have once in a while in Sashin, if we're very lucky and we sit hard enough. It's everywhere, always. We can't get away from it, and yet, we can never really get that satisfaction that we're craving. Because our minds don't work like that. The world truly is undivided, loving, and perfect. And the only way we can ever experience it is divided and difficult. And that is absolutely fantastic. That is what is so marvelous. He says, uh, because of this practice, there are the sun, the moon, and the stars. Because of this practice, there are the great earth and the open sky. Because of this practice, there are body, mind, and the whole environment. Because of this practice, there are the four great elements, the five skandhas. Continuous practice is not something people in the world necessarily want to do or like in any way. But 
It is the true place of return for everyone. Because of the continuous practice of all Buddhas of the past, present, and future. All Buddhas of the past, present, and future are actualized. So this explains the kind of effort that we make, not only in Sashin, but all of the time in our living. We really know that everything has been given. Everything before us is truth. Everything before us is practice. And therefore, there is no way to get it right, and there is no way to get it wrong. We know that everything and everyone is constantly cooperating with us, constantly helping us in just the right way, not in the way we would have expected or wished for. Thank goodness the world doesn't go according to our expectations or wishes. What a terrible world that would be. No. Everything cooperates and helps us in the way that it should. And that is why we never, ever have to struggle and we never, ever have to strive. But that doesn't mean that we're lazy bums. No, we are making effort. Sometimes we're making a big effort. And we're doing this not to make something different or better. We're doing it because we understand that life is continuous practice, and continuous practice is effort. It is walking forward all the time, one step forward, taking care of what is in front of us in that step, the teacup, the napkin, or maybe the aging mother, or maybe it's the aging body, or the aging mind that's not working too well. Just making effort to take a step. And that's how life goes. There's no standing still. There's a step. And we always resolutely take that step. It can be hard. It can be easy. But anyway, it is a joy to still be alive and to be able to take care of this life. In this next paragraph, Dogen mentions something that... Uh, is a really important uh, idea in our practice. It's often called, as he calls it here, the one great causal condition. I think I referred the other day to uh, the fact that um, in the Abhidharma Kosha, Basha, there's a really complicated uh, analysis of Buddhist causality, very sophisticated and quite hard to understand. Last time I tried to read it, I couldn't really understand it. But I do know that causality is a really, really important uh, thing in Buddhism. And it's an all-embracing idea. When Buddha awakened, you remember the story, he, he saw the content of his awakening was to see the scope and pattern of causality. He saw how everything causes everything and how life flows through us all. He saw the big pattern of causes and conditions in this world. And he saw that there is nothing but causes and conditions, mixing and flowing, no beginning and no ending. The Heart Sutra's teaching of all dharmas are empty means there's nothing but causality. There's nothing but this flow. No things in the flow, just the flow. And what's the nature of this flow? Looking deeply into it, 
with eyes of compassion. The Buddha understood that it is compassion itself that flows. It's the most profound truth of our tradition. Reality is compassion. And the whole point of the world appearing is to provide us with the sphere and the stage upon which we and all existing things will awaken. And that's why Buddhas appear in the world, because of this one great causal condition. And of course, Dogen is about to say that that one great causal condition is continuous practice. He writes, as it is not divided by what is hidden, apparent, existent, or non-existent, you may not notice the causal conditions that led you to be engaged in the practice that actualizes you at this very moment of unknowing. <laughs> so the one great causal condition has been operating from the very beginning in your life. You were literally born out of that one great causal condition. That's why you're here. Different things happened, and it all seemed at the time quite reasonable. You know, your, your mother and father wanted you to be a doctor, you became a doctor, <laughs> whatever it was. It all seemed quite reasonable, but really, no. Here you are in session. You thought it was a reasonable idea. Yes, meditation is good for you. I can explain why I want to be there. Oh, I'm a Zen priest. I have to be there. I don't want to go, but I'm going. It all makes sense, apparently. But as Tim said yesterday, in relation to our ancestors, the same is true for us. There is a destiny, a great destiny, the one great causal condition. That's why, really, you're here. That's what has been making use of your puny little thoughts and ideas. <laughs> All along, all along, every step of the way. That's always been the root of your precious human life. He says, even though you don't know it, as he said, you, know, you have no idea, but that's what it is. Then he says, the reason you don't see it is that becoming conscious of it is not anything remarkable. So investigate in detail that it is so because the one great causal condition is no other than continuous practice. Though continuous practice is not limited by the causal condition. It's funny the way he puts this. We don't see the true flavor, shape, meaning, heft of our lives. Because although the evidence is everywhere we look, it is completely unremarkable. And it's not noticeable at all to us because we have had a lifetime's habit reinforced by everything around us of thinking that things are otherwise than that they are, than the way they really are. So even though it's pretty obvious in every way, we completely miss it. And we think of truth, enlightenment, as something remarkable, some kind of 
mystical knowledge that we will acquire. And, and our, our religions, you know, maybe, for, maybe because uh, they're early uh, developers of good PR, <laughs> they make it seem like that, you know, don't they? They make it seem very remarkable. Even, even Buddhism, right? The story of Buddha's enlightenment is a remarkable story. You know, wow, he saw the morning star. It's pretty remarkable. Makes you think that enlightenment is supposed to be a big, special, bafo experience that perhaps later we will have, or the other guy that we read about in the book had. But that's very misleading. It's PR, you know. It's unremarkable, he says. Which is what makes it so marvelous and so astonishing. Because it's always right here, all the time, in the worst moment, in the best moment. Later on in the text somewhere, he says, don't go running around looking for continuous practice. Don't go to monasteries. Don't visit teachers. Don't go to sessions. Don't do all of this stuff thinking that you're going to run toward continuous practice, continuous enlightenment. Because it's always right where you are. It couldn't be any other place. And, and you all, everybody knows this already, right? This is not some, like, news. Isn't it astonishing? You already know that, and yet... Amazing, our capacity to fool ourselves over and over and over again. Well, I think that was about two paragraphs worth of yesterday, the last time I talked, and this time I did about two paragraphs worth, and there's two or three pages more of this, which I will now skip, because I want to get on to the different stories that he tells, the examples of continuous practice. He starts with the Buddha, and then he picks different people through the tradition, through the ages, all the way up to his teacher, Rujing, which is where he ends. All of whom he gives as examples of continuous practice. And, and some of the examples are, are interesting. They're all different. But, as I said the other day, all of them are examples of very serious, total commitment to the practice. And since Tim has been talking about Guishan, uh, I will start, Dogen actually mentions Guishan later on in the text, but I'll, I'll start with Guishan. Tim was bringing up the story about how Guishan was chosen to found a great monastery, the cooked-up uh, contest, and then the actual backstory. But it's even more of a backstory than you think. <laughs> because here, Dogen is using Guishan as an example of how don't establish a monastery in a temple. That's not what this is about. That can be a great distraction from continuous practice. So I don't think we know exactly when Dogen wrote this text, but uh, the Colophon says that he that was edited in 1243, which was before Dogen uh, moved into Eheji Monastery. And I'm not sure whether in 1243 he was already planning Eheji and uh, already had received funds for it. I forget when he moved into Aegi, but I can imagine that he's writing this for himself because he wants to remind himself not to get overexcited about establishing temples and monasteries, but to remember the point of establishing a temple and a monastery. 
So here's what he writes about Guishan. And it's a lengthy quotation. Guishan, who would later become Zen master uh, Dayuan, went to the steep and rocky mountain Gui immediately after receiving a confirmation of awakening from Baijan. He mingled with the birds and beasts, assembled a thatched hut, and tempered his practice. While living on acorns and chestnuts, he was not intimidated by storms or snow. Without temple or property, he actualized continuous practice for 40 years. So he didn't establish the monastery, it would seem. Later, this place became a monastery, renowned throughout China, where excellent practitioners like dragons and elephants came to follow in his footsteps. So it would appear, according to Dogen's information, and I think Dogen usually doesn't make stuff up, that Guishan didn't found uh, Guishan Monastery. He, he lived there and warmed up the spot <laughs> with his continuous practice, so that after 40 years of warming up the place, kaboom, it could, it could happen. So having said that, Dogen now gives us a bit of practical advice. He says, if you vow to establish a temple, and as I say, I, I really think that he's talking about himself, because I think he vowed to establish a temple and did. That's this temple that still is going strong in Japan. If you vow to establish a temple, do not be swayed by human concerns, but maintain the strict continuous practice of Buddha Dharma. Where the practice is tempered, the place where the practice is tempered, where it's brought to fruition, where it's matured and made strong, even if there's no Buddha hall there, no Dharma hall there, just ground, it's still a place of enlightenment of old Buddhas. The teaching given outdoors under a tree may be heard afar. Such a place can be a sacred domain for a long time. Indeed, the continuous practice of one person will merge with the place of the way of all Buddhas. Foolish people in this declining age are consumed with erecting magnificent temple buildings. Buddha ancestors have never wished for such temple buildings. You uselessly decorate the halls before you open your own eye. Rather than making offerings to Buddhas, you are turning the house of all Buddhas into a pitfall of fame and gain. Quietly ponder the continuous practice of the ancient Guishan. Identify yourself with him. This is great advice, really. Very relevant today. Continuous practice is the whole point. Just to practice. To do the practice with devotion. To really trust the practice. Never get used to it and take it for granted. And over all these years, I've seen this happen over and over and over again. People establish communities and temples. And before you know it, there's a bunch of committees not only in, in Buddhism, but in all, I have friends who are you know, rabbis and ministers and priests, and they'll say to me, I wish I could practice. <laughs> you know? I wish I could practice, but I'm too busy to practice. The committees, the fundraising, money is real, you know. <laughs> money is real. Nowadays, it's only not even like a dollar bill, you know, used to be something, you know. Now there's no dollar bills anymore. There's just little blips. <laughs> money is real. So, uh, yeah, you got to do the fundraising, and then you have to take a survey. 
what do the people in the Sangha really want? What, 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 do, what do they need? Do they like a little zazen, maybe? No? More, more uh, pot latches and whatever they call them, coffee clatches. <laughs> what do they want? Take a survey. Then hire uh, a, uh, an analyst and a consultant. You have to have that. And before you know it, uh, really and truly, there's no time for continuous practice. Or we think uh, the continuous practice is for the beginners. We are nobly providing an opportunity through all of our committee work for the beginners to be able to access the practice. It all makes sense. <laughs> Perfect sense. So they sent, Baijang sends Guishan over to this mountain to establish a monastery, and he sits there for 40 years and doesn't do anything. He lets it snow on him, he collects a few acorns, and that's it. <laughs> and, and you know, that's what Suzuki Roshi did. He went to San Francisco, you know, and he started sitting. And people came. And before you knew it, there was a Zen center that grew like a mushroom. And, and my own teacher, Sojin Roshi, did the same thing. He rented a house in Berkeley. He sanded the floor in the attic, and he put Zafus down, and he just sat there. And people came. And, and he was absolutely faithful to continuous practice. That was his whole focus. He didn't worry about anything else. And everything that needed to happen did happen. And all the things that didn't need to happen didn't happen. Now, I, I realize that from a rational, modern world standpoint. All of this seems hopelessly romantic, irresponsible, and lunatic. But I really believe it's true. Please don't ever worry about your community or your temple. Don't worry. Of course, Take care of things the best you can. Keep it as simple as possible. But don't worry. Really and truly, all you have to do is continuous practice, and everything will be okay. I really, really believe this, and I've always tried to live that way. Dogen goes on quite beautifully with his writing about Guishan. And here, I think we can hear uh, a little bit of Peter Levitz, the, our co-translator's voice. The sobbing rain of deep night pierces moss and pierces rock. On a snowy night of winter, when even animals are rarely seen, how could the aromas from people's houses reach you? This kind of search is impossible without the continuous practice of taking your own life lightly and regarding the Dharma as precious. Without cutting grass or moving earth and lumber, Guishan was fully engaged in tempering practice of the way. And what a deep feeling we have for him. With what great determination the hardship was endured by the authentic heir transmitting the true dharma on the steep mountain. It is said about Mount Gwei that there is a pond and a brook where ice accumulates and fog becomes dense. And it's not an inviting place. But that's where Guishan established practice of the way. Continuous practice is a great gift. Don't take it casually. 
due to the power and the merit of continuous practice, the atmosphere on which the earth depends is purified. May it be so. The world is repaired. The palace of the devas is calm and the human lands are maintained. I believe that. This old saying, take your life lightly and take the Dharma as precious, is a famous Zen maxim that I really recommend you try to live by. And it's really true. Our life is so flimsy. You know, one big boulder. It's so brief. You know, you're here and then you're gone so fast. Somebody was saying that this is the 30th year that we've been here at Samish. I don't know if that's right, but it's a lot of years. Went by so fast. I used to be impressed when they would say in the text, 30 years of practice, but now I think 30 years of practice, that's nothing. (laughs) What does anybody know after practicing 30 years? Life is nothing. So fast, flimsy, brief. Being alive and dying are pretty much the same thing. Don't take your life that seriously. It's not a big deal. Take the Dharma seriously. And the funny part is, of course, when you do that, take your life lightly and take the Dharma seriously, that's how you take best care of your precious human life. That's how your precious human life is best used, most beautifully maintained. It's just like another Buddhist maxim that I recommend. If you want to suffer, worry about yourself. If you want to be happy, worry about others. That's a good rule. Now, don't misunderstand this. It's not saying trash your life. You can't trash your life. Somebody else needs you. That wouldn't be nice. And we were learning this yesterday in one of the stories. If it's really cold, you can suspend the rule of no wearing socks in the zendo, a rule we actually had. I don't know if they still have it, but when I was at Tassajara and I was a monk there, we had that rule. It would be very cold in the winter, but you absolutely were not allowed to wear socks in the zendo. However, if it's really cold, you can suspend the rule and wear socks to keep your feet warm for the benefit of others. If you find that you're really, really worn out, take a nap for the benefit of others because they're depending on you. They don't want you worn out. Even though Guishan lived on roots and berries and endured cold and rain, he was not punishing himself. He was taking care of himself for the future of others. Continuous practice is not a slog. It's a great joy. That's how you can tell that you're doing continuous practice because it brings joy into your life. So I'll tell you one more story before leaving about continuous, from continuous practice. And and this one is especially dedicated to those of us who might have begun practice a little later in life 
And sometimes during session, the thought cross, crosses our minds, ah, I should have started earlier. I, I, I lost out. Or maybe you, you actually started a long time ago, but 20, 30 years went by, you weren't serious. And now you're getting serious. You know, I should have been serious then. So this is a story for you about uh, one of our Indian ancestors, uh, Parshva. So this is Dogen. Venerable Parshva, who was our 10th ancestor, never laid down to sleep. He always slept in meditation, sitting up. He was in his mother's womb. He started practicing late in life. That's why he didn't sleep, didn't lay down. He was in his mother's womb for 60 years. And when he was born, he already had long gray hair because he was already old when he was born. That's why he needed to make up for lost time and took that vow. They called him venerable undefiled sides because he never laid down on his side. In order to uh, read sutras at night because he wanted to make up time, you know, he illuminated the page with his inner light kind of like an iPad, you know. (laughs) He apparently was born with this ability to shine light on the page. At the age of 80, when he was about to begin his practice, you think you started late, he began his practice at the age of 80, and a young boy uh, said to him, you're stupid for doing this. It doesn't make any sense because there's two main practices, deep samadhi and chanting, and you're 80 and you're too old and frail to do either one of these things. And you're going to just be like stealing food from the monks, eating it for nothing. (laughs) So this boy criticized him. It says here, hearing this criticism, he thanked the boy but it caused him to reaffirm his vow. And he said, until I master the Tripitaka, become free of desires in the three realms, achieve the six miraculous powers, and attain the eight types of emancipation, I will not lie down on my side. And he never did. It only took him three years to fully awaken. Dogen says, So he was in his mother's room for 60 years. Was he practicing then? 80 years after his birth, he began his formal study of the way. 140 years after he was conceived. (laughs) Although an outstanding person, he was old and frail. More old and frail than anyone else. And he was already old even in the womb and old when he was born. And he didn't mind people's criticisms. It only increased his determination. Do not be be hindered by old age, illness, and frailty, Dogen says. That is a limited way of looking at it. Then he says, birth is hard to fathom. Is this birth or not? Is this old age or not? The views of water by four types of beings vary. And this is a little obscure, but what Dogen means by this is there's this old uh, sort of legend about how four kinds of beings view water. So dragons think that water is a palace. Fish think that water is a home. Birds flying over water think it's a jewel. And human beings think it's what you drink and take a bath with and cook with and stuff. Maybe go swimming sometimes, surfing, sailing. But different from what fish, dragons, and birds think water is. 
Just like in my poem, which one sees the real water? You're old? Really? You're young? Really? Everybody is old and young. Don't get caught by conventional views. Studying Dharma is not like other things. Probably don't take up surfing when you're 80. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't, but... Probably not, but taking up Dharma practice when you're 80 really makes sense. You can do the whole of it in three years or one year or one moment. Dogen says, we should just focus our aspiration and endeavor on the practice of the way. We should understand that the practice of the way is no other than seeing into birth and death. Yet our practice is not bound by birth and death. It's extremely foolish of people nowadays to put aside the endeavor of the way when they become 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 years old. Don't be concerned about how many months or years you have lived. This is just a human view, a merely a human view. It has nothing to do with the study of the way. Do not consider whether you are in your prime or old and frail. Single-mindedly aspire to study and master the way and stand shoulder to shoulder with Parshva. Don't look back and don't cling to a heap of dust in the graveyard. Single-minded aspiration. Continuous practice. So this is, this is about us. This is what we are doing. If you don't think so, that's just thinking. Very flimsy. You've already noticed how thinking comes and goes in a moment. There's something real and powerful in your effort. No big deal. Nothing special. No more important than anything or anyone else. And yet. Thank you for listening to my talk, if you heard it. (laughs) And if you didn't, even better. (laughs) Please take care.